Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. All right, you got 40 minutes. Plenty of time. All right. I thought he was about to say 15. No chance. With that last name, there's no way. So um, it's genetic. I'm sorry. It's genetic. So good morning. I'm so happy to speak with you guys. I I really do think that the uh, Lord has been really sweet in our time uh, studying. I say our time. Our secret place time between me and him. So I hope that doesn't sound weird. I think it's the best thing ever. But really going over a topic that I'm like, thanks, Jonathan, for leaving this one to me, which is our anger. What does the proverb say about anger? I made the title of it. We're in the last slide up here, but up there, it's the first slide. Perfect. Anyways, the first slide says, don't get mad. That's the title of today. And... That's usually the first thing someone says before you get mad, is don't get mad. So what we want to do today is we want to walk through uh, what the Proverbs and even Jesus says about how we wisely manage our anger. So read, if the slides don't work, you're good, man. There's grace. Grace abounds. So, but I'm going to just jump right in, not wait for that. If it works, great. If not, it's not that important. Uh, one of the reasons I do want to say, because we might have some new people here this morning, we're, we've been walking through the Proverbs as a church community, and if you haven't yet, Lance, Humphreys, Annie Middlebrooks, Hayden Coffey, the, the last three weeks, I'm coming on the coattails of three amazing sermons based in Proverbs over marriage, friendships, uh, gentle words, which has a little bit to do with today. So please go back and listen to those on our podcast. They're phenomenal. So, but I want to say, why are the Proverbs important? Like that's, like, why are we even walking through this as a church community? And I'm going to quote someone way smarter than me. Her name is Dr. Elaine Phillips. She wrote this book. If you want to write it down, I'll give you the title. It's an an introduction to reading biblical wisdom texts. She's awesome. So this, this is what she says about the Proverbs. She says, the Proverbs give mankind seven marching orders. Let's try it again. I see it up there. Oh, let's go. Praise God. Okay. Oh, no. All right, anyways, this is what she says. You were going to be able to read it, but now you're going to have to listen. So he who has ears, let him hear. Um, Number one is seek wisdom with every fiber of your being. Number two, practice righteousness. Three, be truthful. Four, love humility. Oh, that's hard. Uh, 
Five, exercise discipline. Six, serve God and God's people. And last but not least, hate evil. Those are the seven marching orders that the the book of Proverbs is giving us. How we should walk through life wisely. She goes on to talk about... uh, When we seek wisdom, we find good advice on how to conduct ourselves so as to avoid major catastrophes and minor embarrassments, like like the slides right now. Thank God for wisdom. When we are robing ourselves in this necessary garb, wisdom being that necessary garb, to deal with life, we add a garland of grace. And I love that picture, that as we're walking in wisdom, we actually have this garland of grace around our neck, and it... It allows others to be attracted to what they see in us and what they experience when they're around us. So good. She concludes by saying, wisdom is the principle that ordered all creation and continues to manifest God's sustaining power in that creation. So that's why we're going through Proverbs, because it's important. God created the world in this way, and he's inviting us to live into this way. They're not promises, they're Proverbs. And we believe, Jonathan has said it, like we believe that there is actually a way to mislive your life. And again, grace. Like don't hear that and be like, oh crap. But maybe a little bit of oh crap. But like there is a possibility for you to mislive your life if you live foolishly. And we don't want to do that, especially as the bride of Christ. So... Before we hop in to what Proverbs says about anger, I have two disclaimers, all right? The first, there are one million sermons that you could preach on what the Bible has to say about anger. We are basing this sermon strictly in Proverbs. So we're just going to go with what Proverbs gets us, and we're going to build on that, all right? So we're, we're not touching righteous anger. We're not touching any of that stuff. Those will be sermons in the future, and hopefully Jonathan will be doing those. So um, the second one is, I've said it already, but there's grace. So I just want to open with a quick prayer that, Father, you would speak the words that you want to speak through me. I'm so honored to be on stage with our church family and be able to share truths that you've uh, disclosed to me. And would your words and would your truths be seen and would your grace be felt? Pray that in your name, Jesus. Mm, thank you. What did Proverbs say about anger? Uh, you might want to write these down. They're not going to be up here, obviously. So if you want to write these down, I'll go through this a little slow. Proverbs 14:17. All right, Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil schemes is hated. We're staying in chapter 14. This is verse 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 29:22 says, an angry person stirs up conflict. You're getting the theme here. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Proverbs 30, 33. That's 30, 33. For as ch- I love this one, by the way. For as churning cream produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. I love the imagery with that. And and you hear stirring a bunch. That is not, when you feel angry, 
you produce strife. Stirring is like a cultivating. It's like letting anger fester, take up residence within us. That is what it means by stirring, okay? So this is not a sermon on how to not get angry anymore. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I don't think I can give you any advice on that one. You're going to get angry. You might get angry at this sermon. But you're going to get angry. What we want to talk about is Proverbs laying out the way for us to manage our anger wisely, not let it overtake us. So, what we can learn from the Proverbs is when angered, human beings become irrational and they become quick decision makers who produce conflict, strife, and destruction. And a lot of the times when we're angry, we're making judgment claims of what's good and what's bad in our anger. And let me tell you, from an unangry position, making decisions when we're angry usually is bad, okay? If we look at Cain in Genesis 4, that's the first time that anger is actually mentioned in the Bible. That's why I'm including it here. It says, uh, God notices that Cain is like angry. He, he notices it. We're not going to spend too much time here. But God approaches Cain in Cain's anger and says, sin desires you and is crouching at your door, but you must master it. So God in his wisdom is saying, hey, I get that you're angry, but do not, if you feed that, if you move out of your anger, if you let this anger control you, it, it, it will master you, and, and guess what? We know what happens. Cain forfeits God's wisdom for what he sees as good as hit in his eyes, and he murders his brother, which leads him to exile. He exiles himself because of his inability to wisely manage his anger. And it's interesting because I'm quoting from the wisdom of Solomon here. It's not canonical, which just means it's not in our 66 books in our Protestant tradition, but it's talking about wisdom with literature, so I think it plays here. But it says this, but when an unrighteous man departed from her, her being wisdom, okay? I'm going to reread that now that we know that. But when an unrighteous man departed from her in his anger, he perished because in rage he killed his brother. It's talking, it's actually reflecting on wisdom's relationship with Cain in that moment. It goes on in verse 4 to say that for that reason alone, Cain's anger, him acting out of violence in his anger, is what actually led to the flood. That's a dramatic pause. <laughs> Yikes. Though this is an extreme example of where anger leads us, it's not too uncommon, uh, uncommon for us to make bad decisions that we regret when we're angry. In our anger, sin lures us by presenting the option to take matters into our own hands, as it did with Cain. That it's good to act out of our anger. That's what sin wants us to believe. It's good to act out of your anger. That what you feel right there? Yeah, go get, go get revenge. They hurt you, you hurt them back. That's what anger does to us. But that's not how we should act. And it's now that we go, you can write this down, James 1, 19 through 20. I'll read it. But it says, we should be the opposite the opposite of what we just talked about. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, because, oh, and slow to anger, because the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. 
And that in itself, we could close it, end it, and we'd have a lot of questions, but it'd be truth. The anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. We'll build on this, this point, though. I think that James finds ground f- for that verse that he wrote in Proverbs. Because when we're angry, those Proverbs that we read, they actually, wisdom tells us what our response should be, and that our response should be that of patience, gentleness, and self-control. All fruits of the Spirit, by the way. It's a little nugget for what's coming. Our contribution should not further strife in conflict amongst one another. Rather, we should be meek. And meek's a weird word. So I'm going to use a guy named Scott McKnight. He's the dean of the seminary I'm at. And he's a, I think he's a brilliant man. But this is how he defines meekness. He says, meek, the meek are those who suffer and who have been humbled, and yet they do not seek revenge, but God's glory and welfare of others. Furthermore, They seek to absorb unjust conditions in the form of nonviolent, non-retaliatory resistance that creates a calm, countercultural community of love, justice, and peace. All things completely opposite of what we talk about that the Proverbs lays out for us. Not strife, but peace. Not quick-tempered, but calm and patient. The meek are in no hurry to defend themselves, nor do they seek to harm one another. It is the meek who do not feed their anger. They don't stir up anger within themselves and with others. And the meek do not satisfy sin's desire because they trust in the one who is in control of all things, which is another really big point that I hope we take away from today, is that when we fully trust that our God is a good God and he is for us, We can let things go. We don't have to act in the moment. That's wonderful news because my impulse is get angry and lash out. Proverbs calls me a fool when I do that. That's foolishness. That's not the way that we're meant to live. And knowing that meekness and patience are included in wisdom's ways to manage our anger, we don't always heed the advice that it gives us, right? Like I just mentioned with myself. Anger today does not always manifest itself in murderous outcomes as it did with Cain. But one thing we can agree on for sure is that anger makes us do stupid stuff that we regret. And we don't need to get into all the examples. You're fully aware right now. You're thinking like, oh yeah, no, you're right. It might be the only thing I'm right on today, but it, it makes us do stupid stuff. While in the moment we may feel vindicated and justified when we act out of our anger, eventually we find ourselves amidst conflict and strife, just as the Proverbs tells us. And if we handle these situations poorly, or as the Proverbs say, foolishly, these conflicts become seedbeds for malice, hatred, and rage to grow, and the fruit we bear in that soil is a hardened heart towards God and towards others. Like Cain, our anger leads us to isolation and exile, and it's no one else's fault but our own. While this might sound bleak, there is hope, and that hope is found in a man who came and not only taught, but lived the way that I think we're being called into living, and that man's name is Jesus. It's why a lot of us are here this morning. 
So what does Jesus say about anger? It's the first time I've ever taken a drink on stage, so I was super nervous about that. Thought it was going to be awkward. <clears throat> so glad we got that over with. I might take another drink later. Uh, wasn't that bad. Anyways, what does Jesus say about anger? Jesus understood the, the destructive power human beings were capable of when controlled by anger. How did he know this? He lived in Roman occupation where he watched his people get mistreated every single day. He grew up in Galilee, which was a place no stranger to zealot activity. There were revolts in the town that Jesus grew up in, and it's likely that Jesus saw those revolts in his own eyes. Humans in anger, potentially right, like righteous anger, acting out in violence against the powers that be. Jesus saw this. He understood it. As a human, we're not even going to get into the God side of things. He was fully man, fully God. He, in his full humanity, he understood what anger could do. And Jesus also understood that anger over his teachings would eventually lead to his own death. In all of this, Jesus exemplified a new way, and I would argue the true way, to be a human. And it's in his Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of Jesus' most famous teachings, that Jesus lays out this new way of being human. But before we get to that verse, I want to say a quote from Eugene uh, Peterson that's so good. And Lance Humphreys talked about this at the beginning of his sermon last week. We want rules. We want scripture to be a rule book, and that's not what it is. And so I'm going to read this quote of, uh, that Eugene Peterson says in regards to, let's go. <laughs> let's clap for Reed Lovelace. That's awesome. Thank you, dude. I appreciate that. So now, hey, you got it up here. This is what he says. He says, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. So it's with those, that frame, that lens that we're going to walk into Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, we'll get to that word, it's fun, Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to, the, to your brother and then come present your offering. That is Matthew 5, 21 through 22. I think, yeah, 26. I don't know why I have 22 on there. Jesus' teaching here is not the abolishment of the law. Let's make that very clear. All right? He's not abolishing the law. He's not saying, hey, you've done, like, this is what they said, but I'm telling you this is what it is. This is Jesus truly interpreting the law and how it should have always been interpreted. We know that Scripture tells us Jesus is not only, Jesus himself says this, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. 
So we can trust that. We can trust what Jesus is saying. His interpretation is, I would argue, the right interpretation to what's being said here. And what he's doing is he's engaging the law as it had meant to be engaged. And he's pointing us to what we should do, which is so important. I don't know why I chased it right, but he's pointing us to what we should do. And in presenting us with this uh, with the true way to live as human beings, he's urging his disciples not only against murdering one another, but acting in anger toward one another, knowing that the outcome is destruction for everyone involved. Another interesting thing here. You have heard it said. The, you've heard that the ancients were told. This is not you have read this. Like these are, these are conversations that are happening in real time in Jesus's day. Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are, are engaging this text and the Jewish people are probably like, they're, again, probably rightfully upset saying, well, do we love our enemies or do we only love our friends? And do we love our, like, how, do, how do we act? Is it, is it bad to act out of anger towards the Romans? Is it, is it bad to act out of if they do something against us? And I think that is so relatable for us today because when we talk about anger, all we want to talk about is, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And, and again, we fall into that rules way of approaching scripture. And believe me, I'm guilty of this. I want to know, what if? What if? But it, life is so nuanced. It's not black and white. It's very gray a lot of the times. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, let's just cut to the root of it. It's not just what murder's good and what murder's bad. He's saying if your murder comes out of anger, if you're angry and you speak out of anger, it's just like killing somebody. Jesus levels it up a little bit. He ratchets it up the intensity. And it's hard and it's challenging, but it's good. It's so good. Because if we think about it, guys, we've experienced what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about speaking words of anger. Again, go listen. I'm plugging Annie's podcast on gentle speech. It's so good. Please go listen to it. We've probably responded in anger to our spouses, to our children, to family members, to our younger folk in here. You've probably done it a lot on social media because people aren't real on social media. I can say whatever I want to, because I'm never gonna have to see that person face to face. We do on social media. I do it when people cut in front of me on the highway and then go 10 miles per hour below the speed limit for miles. I say raka. And so what does that word even mean? The word raka that Jesus is talking about just means good for nothing. It's a value claim. It's a value claim. And in our anger, what Jesus is talking about is in your anger, if you make a value claim that you are good for nothing, you're useless, that is not what God says about that person. That person is an image bearer. That person, no matter 
how wrong they were, they have the potential to bear God's image in a unique way. So as Christians, we're going to get to this in a minute, but as Christians, we should speak a better word. We should not act and speak out of our anger, especially judgment claims over people. And guys, grace here, I'm terrible at this. I'm working on it. Me and and the Lord talked about this this week. I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. But is that true? Though, we just, in our anger, we like to cut the people who cross us. Like, ugh, like I'm going to get my punch back. We want to feel vindicated. We want to take our anger and take the situation into our own hands. And remember, meekness is allowing us to open our hands and not retaliate. It's not weakness. It's power. And it's forfeiting our limited power to his unlimited power. I saved the best Proverbs for last. It's 19, 20, or 1911. And it says, man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. When was the last time that you associated forgiveness with glory? Think about that. Not only is Proverbs talking about what we've already talked about, patience and gentleness, that discretion to be able to not act quickly out of our anger, but not only that, be patient in your anger, and it is actually your glory to go cover the offense of the offender, to forgive him. Mm. That's so good. And when we revel in that glory of extending forgiveness, guess what we're doing? We're actually participating in the glory of the Father in heaven. And a theologian, this is a, disclaimer, dense quote. We're going to break it down a little bit. But an author and theologian named Christopher Holmes wrote this when he said, fool, the fool is not worthy of God because the fool is wedded to himself and his own opinions. The primary fruit of foolishness is hostility toward God, and I would add toward our neighbor, which is the fruit of denying one's own creatureliness. The wise person knows himself to be created. She sees herself as a participation in existence itself, dependent on God, who is existence itself. What does that mean? This is what that means. Wisdom looks like participating with God in how he exists. When we exist with God through obeying him and imaging him, we are the most human we can ever be. We are actually leaning fully in to our creatureliness. Such a weird word, but we're doing it. We have the opportunity to participate with God through the extension of forgiveness. And Jesus himself would later go on to say this in the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, no, we're we're behind a little bit here. We're going backwards. All right, who cares? Jesus himself goes on to say this later in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "Forgive, or for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But I wish it stopped there. 
<laughs> I wish Jesus would have just stopped there. He'd be like, oh, that's nice, Jesus. He goes on to say, but if you don't forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. And we can conclude with this way. When we act like our Father in heaven, we share in his glory, and our replication of his character magnifies his glory on earth. I think participation is a little, it, it is his glory, but we get, to, in, we get to replicate that image through doing what our dad does. Like, we were all kids at once, and then some, a lot of us in here are parents. How it moves the parent's heart when the kid wants to do something that the dad's doing. I just have this, like this dad, dad, you never worked on cars, so I don't know why the Lord gave me this. Like, the Deweys talk a lot, and we're not handy. So, um, but I get this picture of this dad, like, working on something, and he's got his hammer, and then the son's right next to him with his little toy hammer, and he's just doing it, and he's like, oh, the father's like, you're sharing in my glory. You're doing the work that I'm doing. The fact that you want to do what I do moves me. And that's, if we can go back to that, like, innocence of being a child, like, that's all we wanted. We just wanted to be like our dad. Oh my gosh, guys. That's what it is. And as new creations in Christ, we have been given the ability to live differently. We've been given the ability to image our Father in heaven rightly. And we may share in Christ's character and extend forgiveness, peace, and gentleness, and not let anger overtake us, which leads to sin, strife, conflict, destruction, ultimately death. In light of this, I want to go quickly back to the Matthew verse. Reed, could you pull up the Matthew verse again? I know that one worked. And it's in 23 through 24. Jesus says this thing, and it, it seems like it's so out of place, but it's not. It's incredible. Um, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and come present your offering. And you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anger today? What does that have to do with anger? The first thing I want to mention is I've been reading this for just honesty a moment. I've been reading this first wrong my entire life. I've understood it as if I'm at the altar and we're about to make this sacrifice to cover me and my sin, and I'm reminded in my heart that I have something against Derek, I need to go seek Derek out and say, hey, dude, I've been harboring these feelings for you and it's really weird. But that's not what it says. It's the, it's the opposite. It's if I'm at the altar and I'm about to make this sacrifice and the Holy Spirit comes upon me and convicts me in my heart that I've done something and Derek is holding an offense against me, I leave, I leave the sacrifice on the altar and I go. I become the initiator of forgiveness. That is what 
it looks like to live in the kingdom. And it's risky. And this is, this is why I think this is so crazy, is we read this and we don't understand the process of what it would take to take a sacrifice to the temple. We probably assume that it's like, ah, uh, they just, you know, you walk there, takes about 30 minutes. You do this thing, you're good, you move on. Jesus is talking to people here that could live 14 days away. So for 14 days, this person is dragging an ox to get to the temple. Oh, and not to mention, Leviticus tells us all of the things that you have to do to become ceremonially clean to enter the temple so that you can actually perform this sacrifice and receive forgiveness. Are we tracking? This was not something that was done easily. It wasn't mindless. It was intentional. There's a reason, we like to throw stones at these guys, but like, there's a reason why these priests going to their, do their temple duty are avoiding the, the Samar- uh, not the Samaritan, the guy who's beat up on the side of the road. Like, if I touch that guy, I'm going to have to restart this whole thing. I'm going to miss my shift, you know? And... So imagine, you get to the temple, you've become ceremonially clean, you've dragged this ox all the way there, you've kind of bonded with it along the way, and you're standing in line now, and you work your way through the line, and you get to the altar, and you're finally about to receive the forgiveness for your sins, and boom, it hits you. Oh. I created conflict against my brother. Jesus is teaching, it's in that moment. You leave it, and you walk 14 days back, and you go get reconciled. Well, you might not, sorry, you might not, reconciliation might not come, sorry. But you at least initiate the forgiveness cycle. You approach in humility, and you say, "I, I wronged you. Would you forgive me? And you're at their mercy. But even though you're at their mercy, you have done something in the sight of God that's better than slitting the cow's throat and receiving, receiving forgiveness for your sins in that moment. It's in that moment of either, and this is why it's a two-way street. It's in that moment of being vulnerable and asking for forgiveness. And it's in that moment of them saying, yes, I forgive you that we're forgiven. Not just by man, but by him. We don't have to kill the cow. We don't have to do that. This is more important. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, bottom line, no matter how inconvenient it may be, no matter how, might, how risky it might be, you might become ceremonially unclean on the way back. And this might just be a giant waste. This trip was a giant waste of time. He would say, no, it wasn't. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. And we can learn from that today. Guys, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of something, of whether, whether you need to forgive someone else and you've been holding on to this anger for so long that you can't even, you can't even think about this person without having a, like an impure thought come into your head and be like, oh, that person's the worst. You know, we're kind of calling them raka. Um, 
Or if it's uh, the Holy Spirit has convicted me and I'm like, man, I've created a lot of conflict and I need to seek forgiveness. Let's do it. If you're at line at Walmart, <laughs> if you're at line at Walmart and the Lord puts it on your heart, you might not be able to communicate with that person right then and there. I'm not saying like leave your shopping cart in the aisle. But we've been given the greatest gift. We can talk with them wherever we go. In that moment, oh, Lord, forgive me. And then act. Try to set up something with this person. We have phones. They didn't have phones back then. It'd be so much more convenient. You have the bowl at the altar and you're like, ah, oh, I gotta make this phone call real quick. But we, we, they didn't have that. We do. The band, the band can come back up. Um, I got this funny picture uh, the other day. Uh, I had this giant toothpaste stain <laughs> down my black pants. And it had been like seven hours into the day. And I'm like, I feel like such an idiot. Like, no one had the, the decency to be like, hey, dude, like, how many times have you, worn, like, have you heard of a washer? Like, it was bad. So I, I'm like, and, and then it comes in my head. I'm like, Chase, you always stain your clothes. And I do. I'm notorious. Notorious for staining my clothes. Mm. Praise God. Um, I'm notorious for staining my clothes. And before I met Mallory, I would stain my clothes... And in my head, I'd be like, this is worthless. Like, I, there's, I can't wear this anymore, man. I, it's the first time, I, my mom would get me a shirt. I'm like, oh man, I love this shirt for Christmas. And then I would go eat Goro and the spicy miso would get all over me and that stuff doesn't come out. And so I'm like, well, I gotta throw this shirt away. And then Mallory came along and she became aware of my superhuman ability to stain things. And I'm not going to get emotional because this is such a dumb thing to get emotional about. <laughs> she, I remember I stained this shirt that I really liked and, why am I crying? And she was like, she's like, let me, let me, let me fix that for you. I can fix it. I'm like, no, you can't. Like, I'm the most dreadful human. No, you can't. You can't fix this. It's an oil stain. Those don't come out, man. And uh, sure enough, she spends hours working and treating it in different ways. And the stain came out. I'm wearing the pants. <laughs> so, but I was thinking about that. And I was like, why did the Lord bring that to my mind? And I'm like, this is what we do when we speak to each other out of anger. We stain each other and we stain ourselves. We leave marks on humans that are good. We stain one another. But Christ's blood speaks a better word. It washes us clean. <clears throat> Praise God. And as Christians, as the bride, we should participate with Christ in being stain removers. We should participate with 
him. If he's washed us clean, why would we go around making more messes for him to clean up? Why don't we just join him in the cleaning process? I think that's what we should do. I think we should be staying removers. And in doing that, guys, like, it's so much better. And, and, and we're concluding this. You're, you're going to get angry. You might get angry today. But when you get angry, let the alarm bells go off in your head. I need to be patient. I don't, I don't actually have to respond now. If there's, if there's anything that I have said in my anger, because we're going to still do that too, hopefully less and less over the course of our lives. But when we do, we should be, in, when the Lord prompts us, that's when we act. We don't act out of our anger. We act when the Lord prompts us to anger, uh, prompts us to anger, prompts us to respond. And then we seek forgiveness. Even if it requires us saying, will you forgive me? So I'm going to close this with a, a short prayer, but I, we have a prayer team and we have altars and we have pews. If the Holy Spirit convicts you, if he prompts anything within you today of either I need to let this thing go, I need to forgive someone, or oh, I've, I need to seek forgiveness. We have a prayer team that can pray over you, especially if you're the one that's going in humility to seek forgiveness. Let us pray over you. Let us cover you in prayer. We've got an altar that's free. Come down here and, and get, yeah, it's free 99. It's free, it's open. Come here and experience the forgiveness that our, our Father has for us. And if you don't know Jesus, if you just stumbled in here, what a good Sunday. You're forgiven. It was settled in AD 33. You're forgiven. Receive it. Don't try to fix yourself. You're just going to stain yourself. Receive the forgiveness. So let's close in prayer and then please respond accordingly. But our Father in heaven, thank you for your wisdom. Father, you've established all things by and through your wisdom. Holy Spirit, guide us in the way of that wisdom, especially when it comes to managing our anger when it arises. And teach us to be like Christ in all things. You are compassionate, you are kind, you are loving, you are gentle, you are faithful, and you are patient with us. We want to reflect you rightly. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray.